0: Okay, two weeks ago, in the course of discussing the book of Hebrews, I uh, cited a scholar who cited some stuff out of Maccabees, and which caused a couple people afterwards to ask me, "Well, does that mean that we believe that Maccabees is the Bi- part of the Bible?" And, and the answer is no. the The reason why it's of interest is that Maccabees. Gives us history of what happened to the Jewish people between Malachi and Matthew, and the story of their Antiochus Epiphanes, the uh, guy who desecrated the temple, the story of their independence under the Maccabean kings, and it's just it's of interest historically. But the, but the fact that different scholars cite that. To help us have an understanding of the back of the New Testament it does not imply that we believe it's on the same par with scriptures. It's, it would be like reading stuff from the Qumran community that explain what the Essenes were doing during this period. It's, it's of historical interest, yes? Yeah. The historical facts
1: that they cite are still valid historical facts, you know that the facts are true. Right.
0: Right, and, and we wouldn't necessarily call it inerrant. And having read the material myself, it's, I can tell it's not of the same quality as Scripture, but it's still important information to know. Like Josephus sheds light on the history of the Jews. And some of these, uh, I took a, two different times, I had courses that dealt with Old Testament backgrounds, and there's a, a really good scholarly book on this by Everett Ferguson. I ended up having to read twice because it took me so many years to get through seminary because I was a full-time pastor. So I, in 92, when I took hermeneutics, at the end of the class, we had to do a section on New Testament backgrounds. I had to read Everett Ferguson. And then like five or six years later, I ended up taking a course, that uh, and the whole course was New Testament background. And so I went back through Ferguson again. So I should know this stuff, but I don't know. Sometimes the brain leaks a little bit. But interesting, it's interesting material in... Of particular help for interpreting the New Testament is Jewish literature that was written just before that, because it would tell you the terms and issues and the type of thinking. And so that shows up in the Book of Hebrews, and that's why I mentioned it. But I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that we that you should go out and uh, you know add the Apocrypha to your inspired <laughs> canon <laughs> like the Catholics do. Okay. <laughs> okay. We are in Hebrews chapter 11. There's two verses left here. No, yeah, have two verses. And then we'll go on to chapter 12. 35 and 36 we still have to study here. Did we already do 35 and
1: 36?
0: Are there 40 verses? I lost a page of notes. We won't get What happened to the rest of my notes? I've been carrying these around for months. All right, who's in charge of keeping my notes straight? All right. Well, here, uh, let's read the starting of 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they may obtain a better resurrection. I thought we talked about we that. Did. All right. Maybe it got stuck with my notes for Hebrews 12. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll just do it right out of a real Bible here.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Instead of off a of computer Bible like I always use. Okay. <clears throat> now, to get a, let's start with for 35 just to get the context here. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured not accepting their release in order that they may obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, stoned, sawn in two, tempted, put to death with the sword, went about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. So, what I had on my note, I know I did this because I I remember it. I I had cross-references to different people in the Old Testament where these things happened to them. Um the, yeah, maybe, uh, nobody could find anything on my desk.. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: it would be a miracle <laughs> so um, but what we have here is a history of some of the things that happened. Now, as we were discussing, Hebrews 11 progresses interestingly. It starts with the heroes of faith who did mighty things like Noah and the ark and Moses and the Passover and uh, people, the, the walls of Jericho, people who won battles. But then it goes on in order that we don't get the wrong idea and lists in the same um, chapter people who suffered and were killed and who were tortured and mocked and and beaten and put in prison. Now, why is that? How is it that that's of the same value as Moses and Noah and people like that?
3: God's unsung heroes. God said the world wasn't worthy of these people that we don't even know about some of us that aren't even in Scripture that suffered in His name. He knows them because Elijah thought that uh, he was the only one. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, talking about being destitute. Yeah, Yeah, Elijah ended up out in the wilderness.
3: And don't all
2: believers fall somewhere in between? (laughs) You know?
0: Yeah, I don't, we don't have any assurance whether, because we have faith, we're all called to have this faith, which faith is the evidence of things not seen, that we believe in Christ and we believe in His promises and we believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we believe that everything he says is true. But what does that mean as far as the circumstances of our life day by day? Amen. They may be, uh, we see great victories and we see things that are pretty hard to go through and uh, sometimes great suffering. Yes. I don't know
1: Okay. Keith. Isn't what they had in common wasn't the experiences that they experienced at different afflictions or or say winning or the miracles, but it was the hope that they were holding to, the eternal hope, so that whether they won tangibly or whether they suffered and died in this present world, the hope that they were progressing towards that was the thing that they had each one of them in common is the same thing that we have in common.
0: Right. And I think it 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 also is important to realize that we can't just look at the circumstances and decide who God is pleased with. Don't preach on the last part? Yeah, well, we tend to think that way. I just saw an, an essay that somebody published on the web that... It sounded pretty interesting, and it's a guy that I normally like and agree with, but I think he was going too far, and I'll just explain it. Did you see the story about that pastor that was zapped when he grabbed a microphone while he was going to baptize somebody, and he drops dead? Well, then more of the story came out, and it turned out, it turned out this guy was an emergent church and he had some really bad theology. And one of his things he was always talking about was, God surprised me. And I guess he had just said that before he got in there and then, zap, he's dead. So, it's certainly ironic. Um, But anyhow, somebody wrote an essay suggesting that this was like Ananias and Sapphira and that God struck the guy dead for being a false teacher. But I can't, all right, it sounds, we tend to think that way, but what, can we say that for for sure? No. Because the difference is Peter was God's authoritative prophet, your spokesperson. Okay? who And so we know that the case of Ananias and Sapphira was indeed God's judgment. It says so in the, in the inspired Scripture. The way we know somebody's a false teacher is by examining their teachings and comparing it to Scripture, not by the circumstances of their death. Okay, because what if the guy was was preaching the truth and then the microphone killed him? Would we still claim it was Ananias and Sapphira? No, we wouldn't know that for sure. So I would say um, we can't know who's righteous and who's unrighteous based on the circumstances of death. Okay, here, hold on.
1: I mean, the inverse would also be the same. Then Otherwise, you could look at the riches of the Catholic Church and say they must be right. Or for that matter, the Dalai Lama or some other... Uh, religion where you have uh, somebody prospering and teaching false teaching.
0: Right. Kenneth Hagan lived to be really old.
1: Or Benny Hinn.
0: Yeah, exactly. So uh, I would say this. God providentially works as he sees fit and our life is in his hands. Amen. And he can preserve somebody many long years on the face of the earth or he can um, call somebody home early. And we know this from John. Remember when um, Jesus predicted Peter's martyrdom in the Gospel of John. Uh, do you want to bring the mic over to Mike? He's, he's been patient here, and um, and then Peter turned around and looked at John and said, "Well, what about this man? Now, what was the answer? What's it to you? What's it, what's it to you? What, if, he's, if he's still alive when I return, and so what Jesus was saying is that He's sovereign over this." And we just need to know what's right and wrong based on Scripture, because sometimes wicked people prosper and sometimes righteous people suffer. Amen. And we can't determine truth and error, right and wrong, based on circumstances of people's lives. We need to compare our behavior to the Scripture and our teaching to the Scripture. Mike?
2: Yeah, I was going to say that uh, all these people were people of faith, and that They received their faith by the grace of God. And when uh, faith is manifest, it's to the glory of God, regardless of what the situation is. And, uh, you know, like you were talking about, um, Noah, who was a preacher and had nobody follow him, and then uh, Jonah, who was reluctant and won over a city, And it was they were both to the glory of God, and it it wasn't uh, necessarily the character or the particular circumstances of the people. And um, sometimes we we tend to always, you know, be in a state of comparison where I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at the guy next to me, and you know, I wonder how he, sizing him up, comparing (laughs) him to, to what my picture of myself is. Uh, And I don't think God works that way. Um, Each person here was known and chosen from the foundation of the earth. And so their life uh, is known to God. And he's going to use that life to glorify himself. And it it could be in in, uh, the smallest, most unnoticed way, or it might be in a great uh, uh, thing that the world uh, steps up and takes notice of. But uh, we can't limit God, and uh, you know I think your uh, example of when uh, Peter was asking about John, and Jesus says, you know, what's that to you? I, th- I think that's a good, yeah. good lesson, object lesson to keep in mind.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then here, um, two Corinthians ten is another passage that I think we might. Look at. They were making some negative statements about Paul. Verse 10. Here's what they had to say. um, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech contemptible. So, how's that for a press release? (laughs) All right. Put that on your back cover of your book. Let's uh, <laughs> let such a person consider this that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are indeed when present. In other words, Paul lives what he preaches, and the the validity of Paul's gospel wasn't dependent on his charisma, aura. Amen. You know, we talk about people having stage presence. And there are certain people that just people want to see and listen to, and so they end up being movie stars. What Paul said is that that had nothing to do with it. That wasn't even important. What's important is that the message is true and that he lives it out consistently, whether he is very eloquent or whether his speech is, like they say, contemptible. But then look what he goes on and says in verse 12. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves... Compare themselves with themselves; they are without understanding. So, um, we—it's so tempting to do this, and it's hard not to do it. But I think a good thing to remember is that when things are going really well, God's very kind and merciful. Amen. And when things are going really bad, God's very kind and merciful. (laughs) And uh not just start you know things are going well, get kind of full of ourselves, look at look at what I'm doing, look how this is happening, or when things are going bad, get so down that why am I doing this it's not worth it um, and I've experienced both more of the latter um, you know, over the last thirty years, but um I kind of shared my story in one of the chapters. The galleys from the second second generation galleys from the book came back, so we're trying to get book. Cleaned up so it can be published by January. And I noticed I had my story in there. And when I, when this happened, probably it was in the, like the late 90s, maybe 97 or so. But we were in this class where they were telling us how to be successful at the seminary. And they were bringing in all of the success success stories and we had to go on a field trip to see the success stories. And so we go to a church where this guy had converted over to the seeker sensitive from just being an ordinary Baptist church, and now he had two thousand people coming to his church. And so, and then he, the same guy, spoke to our uh, class, and he was telling about vision casting. And uh, I I talk about I talk about vision casting in the book. It's not a biblical concept; it comes from the world of business. But anyhow, then we were having these discussions, and they were, and, and so they they put all these. Statistics out there, and one of the ones that they used was that 80% of the churches in America are either plateaued or declining, and they define that as failing. Right? and so then the the, the reason to, to learn how to convert over to the seeker-sensitive model, quote unquote, was to reverse this horrible problem that 80% of the churches are are failing. And so I was sitting there listening to all this. And I finally just said, well, you know, I've got to admit, I'm one of the failing ones. I've been in the ministry for 20 years, and our church is smaller now than it was seven years ago. Um, but it's not an easy situation, and I'm doing the best I can, and I'm preaching the gospel, but if I'm a failure, I'm a failure. And it was very discouraging. And if you felt like trying to justify yourself by saying, well, I'm doing this, or I'm doing that, or i got this circumstance, this circumstance, it just was worse. It was, just, it was actually worse to to, um, to to listen to and think about. And this thing, I don't care whether it's a positive or negative thing, as soon as you start comparing yourself with other people, you're going to have problems. You're really going to get into pride or unwarranted discouragement. And I think it's just a foolish thing altogether. What we ought to compare is our lives to the standards of the Scripture and our preaching to the doctrines of the Bible. And if we go by that standard, then we can decide whether we're going to be okay on the day of judgment. Well, that was in 97, and I, I got to admit, I was very discouraged, and I was wondering why I was even in the ministry. But in 1998, John MacArthur came and spoke in town to about a thousand pastors, and I, I was privileged to be one of them. And he preached out of 2 Corinthians about this triumphal procession. And his message basically said that the greatest privilege that a person has ever been given is the privilege of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. And that this, this blessing of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ is so precious that even if it's rejected, and he was, he was speaking on this verse where it says a a sweet savor to those who are being saved and some unto death and some unto life, even if it's rejected, God is still glorified. Amen. Because now, His The terms of salvation have been declared. He'll be glorified on the day of judgment when people who've rejected it will have to face the consequences because we did preach it. And God will use it to save some people. And he said, it doesn't matter how big your church It it means nothing. That's what MacArthur said. He had a great big church and he downplayed that every single time. He said, I happen to be at the right intersection in the right part of Southern California at the right time. And so people come. That doesn't mean anything. What really matters is if the Gospel is being preached, the Word of God is true. Amen. And that was 98, and that was a turning point for me because at that point I knew that the, whole, the only thing that mattered is the Gospel. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if people think you're great. It doesn't matter if people want to come and listen to you. It doesn't matter if somebody else is more successful. And just get it out of your head and make sure the Gospel goes out, and then the Lord will use it. Amen. So I think that this says the same thing. The people saw it in two are in the same list as the ones who subdued kingdoms. Yes. If numbers is a sign of success, then what well, we should consider Buddhism or uh, Hinduism or Islam or Mormonism? Islam, or or a Mormon. Islam, because <laughs> Islam is, is the fastest rising the world Yeah. Christ. Right. So um this this is so the message is is our faith based on what we know to be true about the person and work of Jesus Christ? And is our message true to the message of the New Testament? And are we willing to live out the implications of it in a real way so that we're not preaching one thing and living something else? I'm going to talk about that this morning when we're in um, uh, Thessalonians. All right, back to Hebrews 11 here. There you go. Okay, so the, so we have the same people of faith who subdued kingdoms and were sawn asunder. And it says, of whom the world is, was not worthy. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Verse 38. sheepskins, skins, ghost, sins, destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, of whom the world is not worthy. In what regard would we say the world wasn't worthy?
3: Because the world system is an enemy of God.
0: Okay. So God is being merciful, I would say... The fact that God allows history to go on, the fact that he allows his little flock to stay here on the earth and to be hated by the world, shows his common grace. In other words, the the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And if all of the people of faith were removed, which is going to happen at the rapture, The world would be so much worse off. Because the salt and light would be gone. And then they could do anything they wanted to do and it would be like hell on earth, which is what's going to happen. Yes. Uh, Keith, here.
1: (laughs) I think that what he's saying the world is not worthy is the world is not worthy of the message of hope and the gospel that these men were preaching. It's not worthy of the salvation that God has. Offering to it through these people and right. through the preachers of the gospel, and it's not worthy to even receive it because they're persecuting the very ones right. that are bringing them the message. Just like Paul, when he was Saul, he's persecuting Stephen and wanting to kill all the Christians, and he wasn't worthy, but God chose him anyway.
0: Right. That reminds me of um, Justin Martyr' the apology that he wrote, in really in church history, and he was explaining. The behavior of Christians. Maybe it was either him or Tertullian. They both had material like this. But why, but they were basically saying, why do you hate us? Why do you kill us? We we pay taxes because we've been commanded to by our Lord. We pray for you because we've been commanded to by our Lord. We work and we're good citizens because we've been commanded to by our Lord. And we are here in, willing to serve Willing to pay taxes, willing to obey all the laws, except for when you tell us we have to serve pagan deities. Amen. So for this, you kill us. And that was the—that was the uh, what they, the early Christians were saying to the Roman Empire. So we really aren't a threat to your empire. We're—we're we're good citizens, but they hate the message. So the world's not worthy of the message. And that the Lord leaves the messenger amidst, in the midst of a world that is wicked shows His mercy. And the fact that history rolls on shows God's mercy. One of these days it'll come to an end. Amen. Alright? But the Bible says the reason history is still rolling along is because God is not willing that any would perish. Alright? So that there, if there's, whoever is still left that's going to repent is still the subject of the Gospel preaching, but at some point it's going to be too late. Then it says, Wandering in deserts, mountains, caves, and holes in the ground. Well, this reminds us of Elijah and Elisha. Um, I can't remember what cross-references I had, but it was to some of these Old Testament events where that happened. I remember Elijah went after he had the big victory over the prophets of Baal. And he went off, ran off into the wilderness and complained that he was the only one left. He wanted to die. He
3: wanted to die. He's <laughs> a psychiatrist,
0: but God one. <laughs> Dad said he needed a psychiatrist. <laughs> Elijah wanted to die. <laughs> but uh, the Lord sent him to this widow's house and, and sustained him, fed him ravens fed him. He had water by the brook, and then the brook dried up. Then he ended up in this widow's house. Then it talks about uh, verse thirty nine and all these Having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Now, let's think about that for a moment. In what regard did they not receive what was promised? Now, think about the context earlier in Hebrews eleven. Okay. Let me look at a. Um, let's go back to verse thirteen because again, this is sort of a bookend. Verse thirteen and verse thirty-nine. Look at verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one Therefore, God is not ashamed to call be called their God. He's prepared a city for them. So, what they didn't receive that was promised was the ultimate heavenly kingdom, the Messianic kingdom, where all the redeemed are gathered, where we where we dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, right? In a sense, the, on the,
1: references. the references they had here is in. King 's nineteen with okay. Elijah hiding in the hole in the cave and yeah. coming where are you uh, but it 's weird because Elijah was the one of the two people that didn 't die in a sense he didn't he you know, he didn 't die and he received something, but even his not dying wasn 't considered the Epitome of the promise. The epitome of the promise was the Messiah coming, and God, yeah. and God coming and becoming man, and God being incarnated. Ultimately, was the promise that He didn't see. He only saw that on the Mount of Transfiguration.
0: That's true, and you know it makes me think of another passage. Remember, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet, but yet the least in the kingdom of God would be greater than him. Amen. Meaning that even John the Baptist, who got right up to, he saw Messiah. He died before Christ was raised from the dead. And, um, the, the ultimate goal of all of this is the kingdom of God. Amen. Now, I believe the kingdom of God is future and literal. It, I've been reading material uh, preparing for my next CC article and it's going to be on this idea of spiritual formation that's out there now. That uh, is an alternative to sanctification, I guess. But uh, what I noticed as I was reading some of these books is that they all say the kingdom of God is within you. Okay, so they, they determined that we need to do a, go into a meditative state and have an inward journey to find the kingdom. But see, if you get a bad doctrine of the kingdom of God, you're open to all kinds of things. In the next article after that, I'm going to talk about dominion theology. And so one group tries to do a journey inward through meditation to find the kingdom, and then others are going to establish it through human effort. Now, the the kingdom is going to be Christians ruling over other people and forcing them to obey God. And, uh, and then once we take charge, then the kingdom will be here. And then the King doesn't come until after we've already established the kingdom without the King. Now, isn't that? uh it's just so fanciful, but the people that believe it are so convinced they think the rest of us are just lazy failures. Um, <laughs> well that that certainly was the idea uh in in the medieval times, and it's it's, it's come back that, well we're going to establish the kingdom we're going to buy property for the kingdom. no, you can't buy property for the kingdom. the kingdom doesn't have a zip. Code.
3: <laughs> okay. I think we should deal once and for all with his word successful pastor says sometimes he don't feel successful because he doesn't have a big congregation every one of you are successful Jesus Christ they came to him and said we work working miracles in God's name we're casting out demons working these great miracles and God says don't rejoice in that Rejoice in that your name is in the book of life. That's the real miracle. God's successful. He finished it. He died. He shed his blood. He rose from the dead. Each and every one of you are so successful because your name is in the book of life. You can't get any better than that. Everybody wants to work these great miracles. God worked the miracle. He said the work is finished. He did it. We're in the book of life. And you know what God said? What would you trade your soul for? This world is nothing. You're in the book of life. Success is in Christ. It's done. You got it. Realize what you got in Christ. Go forward, testify because every time you testify and nobody listens and they hate you. Guess what? The Holy Spirit is there listening.
0: Okay. All right, so rejoice you that, that you so that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> No. Dad does On not get there's you know, no, you know, we're <laughs> We're not, <laughs> not going to give you a mic, dad. We don't want to blow so up our speaker.
3: World that 's all it thinks about is success from the world point of view. there are failures
0: well, you know what the reason for that is a lack of eternal hope right now and, and there 's nothing more disturbing is when Christians willingly downplay their as you were talking about their eternal hope and start making everything what happens here, what I do here, what I get here, how, how people see me here, and um, how do I class myself compared to other people out there and it's just uh misguided. All right, now it says here how they gained approval. All right, now we talked about they did not receive what was promised because neither have we yet. We we see it better than they do. So we see things that angels do. Things that were prophesied in the old testament, because we are by you know, we are in the new covenant that they just looked forward to. But well, we don't have it. The future is when Christ actually returns and establishes the kingdom literally. You can't have the kingdom without the king literally ruling and reigning. Uh, otherwise, um, we're still here in history and preaching the gospel. Now, souls enter the kingdom, how? By faith. This is they have gained approval through their faith. So they believed God and they trusted God and... Therefore we're approved by God. Now verse forty says because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Now that's what I was just alluding to. How do we uh, add anything to what they had? a part of it ourselves. Yeah, we're entering into the to the messianic promises in a in a greater way than they had. Because they were looking forward, and we can, we're looking backwards to what Christ has already done, and we're looking forward to what He will yet do. But the new covenant is superior to the old, and that's what has been said all the way through the Book of Hebrews: better promises, better covenant, um, better priesthood, better sacrifice. So we have a lot that we are, in a sense, completing their faith. Okay, here, grab the mic. So I, it sure helps my. Um, internet recording to have that. But
1: mic. doesn't it mean, so apart from us, they would not be perfect. So apart from our joining them, there's a, there's a number that God has that completes the kingdom. And apart from the people, the full complement of the invisible church coming into his kingdom, the door is still open. It's, the, is, right. is, isn't, isn't that the it's still incomplete. It's incomplete because God has the gospel and through the gospel wants to add to the kingdom all who He's yeah. planned to
0: come. Yeah, the Bible says the names are in the book from before the foundation of the world. Amen. But the incompletion is that in, as history rolls on, the people literally have to be born, live, come to faith, and believe in Christ. Amen. Crazy. And it's kind of a mystery, but the, we got to go by what the Bible says. And Peter tells us that, that the reason for the delay is God's unwillingness for any to perish. Uh, that will indeed come to Him. Right? Alright, so um, I do have notes now once we get to chapter 12. So let's get started on that. Now we have a therefore. This is an implication from everything we learned in Hebrews 11. Because faith is the evidence of things not seen, because great people of faith in the Old Testament believed God, Abraham, Noah, Moses, the people in Judges the won victories, the people like Elijah, all of these people. Because without us, they're not complete, according to verse 40, therefore, logical inference, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So now, the author of Hebrews is taking up a metaphor um, from an athletic contest, particularly a foot race. And because these great people of faith in a sense are witnesses. Now, some people have read this verse and Suggested that this means that they're literally watching us. I don't that this verse isn't teaching that. that, that that's what some people say, but there's, that's not even in the mind. I I don't think that you could take that literally. For one thing, just think about it. If you were in heaven, would you want to watch people on earth failing? Yeah, it wouldn't. Yeah, it, we, yeah, exactly, and. Um, I don't, I think the idea is, that this whole thing is a big metaphor, and the idea is that you're, it's like the Olympic Games, and you're in the stadium, and you're running the race, and the people are in the crowd watching the race. So, in a sense, it's just carrying on the metaphor. Yes, Sam. Okay, not spectators, but inspired, exam, inspiring examples. Okay, Uh we're going to get some exercise for you here, Scott.
1: And the whole concept of witnesses as testifiers. So, because we have such a great cloud of testifiers telling us the gospel and telling us that faith is valid, that we continue on in that, isn't that the?
0: Yeah, yeah. Here, the witnesses would be. Um, People of faith, whose example we are to follow. That's and we're to be following their example. That's why they were listed there. Um, I was going to cite Lane 408. Let me see if I can find that here. Okay, he thinks we need. Let me read. Verses one and two together, so we get we can see where this is going. Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race said before us. This is a continuing a sentence. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne. So the ultimate example is Jesus. Amen. The greatest of all examples, because he's, Amen. he's perfect. He's God and man. And so as we are, have these people of faith as witnesses, whose examples we follow, our eyes are fixed on Jesus, who is the ultimate witness, Amen. the ultimate one who's run the race before us. Amen. And because our eyes are fixed on him, then we want to lay aside the encumbrances. Now, in, a, in an actual foot race, you don't want to wear your parka. <laughs> <laughs> and, and your snow, snow boots, right? <laughs> you know, I used to run uh, cross-country when I was uh, in high school, and, you know, you'd have those little bitty shoes that had spikes, but didn't have hardly any heel to them, and just some little shorts, and, you know, you, you got unencumbered, so you could run... Uh, with the best you can for as long as, long as you could. Okay, so in in our metaphor here, sin is an encumbrance that easily entangles us and keeps us from running the race the way we should. Amen. Alright? And, and it gets our eyes off of Christ. Uh, William Lane says, Jesus' own experience of triumph through suffering provides perspective on the purpose of suffering in the experience of Christians. The trials of the community described as disciplinary in character. This is talking about chapter 12. They have been assigned by God to those who are his children. There is a necessary and integral relationship between disciplinary sufferings and sonship. Although Jesus enjoyed unique sonship, he himself came to share God's throne only after he had experienced the disgrace of the cross, um, and, and suffering. So, Jesus is our example. He suffered. He's triumphed. We shall also suffer. And through God's discipline, we will also overcome. Amen. He's bringing sons to glory. We're uh, we going to bring it to...
3: does that
2: at all refer back to to, um, Ephesians 6, where we do not wrestle against flesh and blood and against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts and wickedness in the heavenly places? No,
0: I don't think that's the witnesses. The witnesses are these people of faith, I think. Although it's certainly true that we wrestle against flesh and blood, but I don't think that's the witnesses. The witnesses would be, uh, the people of faith whose example we are to follow. But the, so in a sense, we've, we read about all these people of faith in Hebrews 11 to show us what faith looks like, how it's lived out on the face of the earth. And now there's a transition. They're the witnesses, but our eyes shouldn't be fixed on them. It should be fixed on Jesus, Amen. who's the ultimate exemplar, so to speak, the ultimate one who went before us, the forerunner, the one to the right hand of God uh, Give God a chance there.
3: Without verse two in chapter twelve, it seems like verse one is a good springboard for most Catholics to 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 idolize saints and so on as witnesses to, uh, as witnesses to be uh, uh, inspiring examples. So the saints. Like the springboard, springboard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all the saints that are in the Catholic uh, Church. But without verse 2,
0: you, 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 you can't stop it with that. Just yeah, it, it says fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's the one That's right. that matters the most. Amen. So we have an athletic contest metaphor. Now this is an endurance. Notice it says let us run with endurance. So we don't have a 100-yard dash here. No. This, is a, this is a long race. And so you've got to make it all the way to the end.
4: the word witnesses, do you think that it could be saying they're witnesses of the gospel? Not So we're surrounded by a crowd of fellow witnesses to the gospel, and it's almost a play on words then.
0: Well, that's ultimately what our witness is. Um, and let me read what William Lane says here. The emphasis in verse 1 falls on what Christians see in the host of witnesses rather than on what they see in Christians. Good point. Let me read that again. This is William Lane. He's a, he's a great Bible scholar. The emphasis falls on what Christians see in the host of witnesses. In other words, we're supposed to see something in them. That's why they were listed. It's not what they see in us. Amen. Um, the appeal to their example is designed to inspire heroic Christian discipleship. The context rules out the thought of spectators in an amphitheater who watch the contemporary Christian race, but instead speaks of God's testimony to the heroes of faith on the pages of the Old Testament. Christians can benefit from the testimony of these Old Testament wisp- witnesses to the validity of faith as they exert themselves in the race of faith prescribed for them. Amen. I think that explains it very well. Amen. All right, so now we got the idea of what it looks like to have faith, because we just saw... Uh, Roll call of a bunch of people who did. Uh, okay, uh, do you want to bring over here? <laughs> this is his uh, weekly exercise routine here. I was just going to say that it sounds a lot like what Keith just mentioned. That it's their testimony that's to be an encouragement to us.
2: Yep. Mike. Yeah, I was going to say that there's a connection between witness and faith, and that uh, you can't have faith without being a witness. Um, but in another comment I, or a question I have for you, Bob, is this author and perfector of our faith. Is uh, can you unpack that for us a little bit?
0: Okay, um, there's a discussion on exactly what it means. But perfector can mean forerunner. All right. I was going to look up the Greek on that, or a champion. It's archegos. Archegos um, it says in the light of the athletic metaphor, it's proper to recognize in archegos the nuance of champion demonstrated for the term in the first occurrence in 2:10. In 2:10-16, Jesus's solidarity solidarity with the family of faith was presented under the aspect of a cosmic struggle with the devil, his struggle in is recalled in its personal aspect as a shame and hostility from sinful men. So this perfecter would be like a champion, the ultimate that we are looking to. That's, that's what it says here. Um, Well, we know that's all, that's true, and I think as we go on to this chapter 12, the idea of discipline comes in there. That how he's working is he disciplines us. But here, it's looking to him as an example that we see. I'll, I'll look up some more Greek, and I'll bring this back next week when we get into this. I'll, I'll try to find out. One of these words is very rare in the Greek, and they're not even sure what it means. Okay? Because uh, there aren't too many times it's used. Uh, let's go back to verse 1. I think I have some cross-references here. Um, where should we start? Um, why don't we start with Cat and we'll work this way. Uh, if you could look up Matthew 10.22 and then Kathy, Matthew 24.13, Keith, Luke 12.15, Karen, Luke 14, 26 to 33. Okay, Matthew 10, 22.
3: You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved.
0: Okay, it says you'll be hated by all because of my name. That's interesting. Why is thats that? Is that is it, let's talk about that. You'll be hated by all because of my name. Why?
3: man must be saved. That name, Jesus Christ.
0: Thou art the Christ. That okay name. Okay, so now let's think about this. Doesn't it seem today in America that that's not true? Aren't there a lot of Christians that are popular and loved by the whole world? So why aren't they hated because of His name? <laughs> They're, not <preaching> the name. <laughs> They're not preaching the full implications of the Gospel. Uh, yeah, Keith. Go Oh, here. <laughs> what? What well,
1: I was thinking about in terms of the disciplines and the spiritual disciplines, here we're entering to a chapter where God disciplines people. and The discipline of God happens as people proclaim his name. As, as I confess and proclaim the gospel clearer and clear, with a louder and louder voice, the people hate me more and more and more, and I end up with the disciplines of God imposed on me as a consequence of my testimony. It's not something that I seek inside myself. I just as soon avoid it. And the whole concept then is to continue to proclaim the name of right. God in the midst of people saying that I don't like you. Stop it.
0: That's an interesting thing. These spiritual disciplines are things that people dreamed up, like joining in a monastery, taking an oath of poverty, self-flagellation, going into solitude and silence. Going, to, people. I'm going to write. I'm writing an article about this. Hopefully, this next week I'll get it done. But. These things people stop to try to make themselves more holy, but they're not in the Bible, the biblical concepts. So spiritual disciplines are not even, it's a sidetrack, and it actually doesn't make people holy. In fact, Paul warned against these things in Colossians chapter 2. It says that they have no power against the flesh. All right, so now why does the world hate us? Because of my name. It says, now they'll hate you because of my name, but the one who endures to the end shall be saved. What does it mean to endure to the end while being hated by the world? He that
3: endureth is the one that believes in Jesus Christ is who he says he is.
0: Okay, The person who will continue to hold forth their testimony and their confession in spite of hatred, persecution, lack of popularity, whatever comes our way, we're going to keep being confessors. That is the key in the book of Revelation to what it means to be an overcomer. An overcomer is a confessor.
3: Amen.
0: A person who denies was overcome by the world. Right. A person who confesses overcomes the world. Amen. And so, if the more clearly we confess who Jesus is, what He did, the terms of the Gospel, the more the world will hate us.
3: Amen.
0: It's absolutely offensive to the world, Amen. Because it condemns sin. It, can, it it says that God is a holy and just God, whose wrath is directed against sin. And we, in our unregenerate state, think we're good people. That's right. So why would God be angry with me, a good person? I'm not a serial murderer. I'm not a rapist. I pay my taxes. So what's the problem? And so that's why it offends people, because it's telling them, no, you're wicked. Now, if you take out enough key aspects of the Gospel, you can create a situation in which the world doesn't hate you anymore. Now the world loves you.
3: Decision, salvation.
0: Yeah, right. Check a little card, put it in the offering. Um, so, anyhow, I mean, that's what this book's about that I'm going to publish here one of these days. The whole book will tell this whole process of how an ingenious person has been able to create a whole version of Christianity that the world loves. He's not preaching his name. It's so there, there's he's doing the impossible according to Jesus. All right, the next verse uh, was Matthew 24:13. I think it's the same idea.
3: But he who endures to the end shall be saved.
0: Okay, and in that, and that's in Matthew 24, and that was in the context of false Christ, false prophets, misleading, uh, the cosmic signs that are going on. But enduring to the end is never giving up your confession, amen. No matter what happens, absolutely, this is this is um, non-negotiable. Amen. The terms of the gospel, the personal work of Christ, are non-negotiable. We can't give it up. And we can't put it, hide it under a bushel. No. And we can't just keep quiet. Amen. We can't just blend in. We must be confessors. Amen. If you are just silent, you won't have any problems. There's nothing to worry about if you're silent. Yeah, Dan, you're, you're safe. <laughs> All right. Keith, you had uh, Luke 12,
1: 15. Then he said to them, Beware, and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions.
0: Okay? So even when you have an abundance, your life doesn't consist of your possessions. Do you believe that? Amen. So, what is greed compatible? If greed for material possessions, is that compatible with being a Christian? Why not?
3: There's no hope in it. <laughs> it's
0: all going to burn up, right?
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, so Jesus teaches contentment. Okay, then uh, Luke uh, 14, 26, 33.
4: If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. with 10,000 men to encounter the one who is coming against him with 20,000. Or else, when the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciples who does not give up all of his own possessions.
0: Wow. That's that's hard, isn't it? Did any of you read the book Hard to Believe by John MacArthur? He comments on that a lot. And what's the subtitle? The High Cost and Infinite Value of Knowing Christ, is it? Yes. Uh, uh, he, t- he preaches on that. He has that in his book. And you, something like Karin just read, you listen to that and think, well, who can be saved? Well, in fact, that's what the disciples said uh, when they heard in Luke. They said, well, who can be saved? What was the answer?
3: Jesus said what's impossible for men is possible for me.
0: Amen. I can save you. Okay. You can save okay. That's the right answer. So here, here's the issue. That, that was a great cross reference. That is really strong. You, you have to be willing to lose your father and mother, brothers and sisters. You may have to lose your life. You may have to lose all your possessions. And that's the cost. And if you present that, you can only come to the conclusion that this is impossible. Sure. Right? Amen. And so then, why would you present it that way? Why did Jesus preach that way? And MacArthur talks about this because Christianity is not based on human ability. Amen. It's not based on just being a good religious person. It's, it's based that I'm so hopelessly sinful, I, I, there's no way I'm fit for the kingdom. And I can't whip myself in shape to be fit for the kingdom. I'm a hopeless, helpless, wretched sinner. And God have mercy on me. And with God, all things are possible. And when God comes into somebody's life powerfully through the gospel, people literally are willing to lose everything. People are willing, and if your family rejects you and says, I don't want to see you at Christmas, I don't want to see you at Easter, I don't want you to step foot in my house again, I have known people that had that happen to them when they became Christian. Uh, there were, we went to Bible college with a little young lady that that happened. She had nowhere to go because she'd been considered dead by her family when she became a Christian. We had a daughter. We don't have one anymore. Don't call. Don't write. Don't show up. You're dead. Bye. That's what cost. That's what it cost her to be a Christian, and she was glad to be a part of the family of God. Amen. Praise yes.
1: In, in in a sense, what Karin read are the spiritual disciplines, but they're imposed from the outside, and not something that I create from the inside to prove something. Right. If I try to build those to prove something, I'm building my own piety and I'm constructing yeah. a house of cards. If God. In his discipline imposes them on me. There's sorrow. It says that there's sorrow. There's no real discipline without sorrow. But that sorrow gives me joy because it's because of the right reason that I'm proclaiming and confessing the gospel.
0: Yeah, so that's a bit of, uh, remind me to put that in my article, Keith, okay? Keep that in your head. I'll, I may forget. Let's go, and then you just go to my article. And that's, Lavon asked a good question a couple weeks ago about the means of grace. Very good question the difference between spiritual disciplines and means of grace, means of grace is what God does. God says, this is what I'm doing. So you come to me on my terms and put yourself under the teaching of the Word of God, because that's what God says He's going to do to change your life. And so if we're doing what He's commanded by in faith, that's God's means of working graciously in our life. Spiritual disciplines are dreamed up by men. And I was reading this Dallas Willard book that I'm going to write about and he lists all these different ones and this works for this guy and this works for that guy. And then after he lists the ones that he thought work, he says, but there may be others. There's no end to it. I mean, you, you, maybe it would work to go visit the Dalai Lama and sit on the mountaintop in Tibet and, and gaze at the moon. That might make you closer to God. They don't have any logical end. And, and you're right. It's what we, what we think we're going to do. But God disciplines us. So we come to him on his terms, and he might be put me through the discipline of prosperity to see whether I'm going to keep serving him in that circumstance, or he might put me through the dis- discipline of poverty to see whether I'm willing to ser- serve him in that circumstance. That's God's business. Amen. It's not ours to put the whole thing in our hands and say, here's what I'm going to do. Okay, quick Mike, and we got to be done.
2: look at the passage that was just read uh, this is it, it's it's a promise it's an encouragement it should give us confidence and that we're not looking to our own ability but that Christ is working in us to uh, first of all the author he he, he he gives us the initial faith and then he keeps working with us and in us to perfect that faith okay. so that Uh, Again, we're looking to Him, uh, not just as a goal, but as uh, the initiator,
0: the strength, the
2: driving force in in, uh, our sanctification.
1: Amen. Okay,
0: amen. Thank you, and we'll see you upstairs in a half hour.